Tillin, a Welsh word for Celtic harp. Welcome to Tillin Tales, a podcast that uses harp music to draw you into a realm that combines science and creativity to uncover the magic in our everyday reality. I'm Sophia Matson. I'm a researcher, a writer, a musician, a teacher, and now I'm a podcaster. Some people think I'm a witch. I act as a shop, an old English word spelled S-C-O-P, but pronounced kind of like you're a little British and you're talking about a retail shop. A shop is a minstrel that tells stories while playing an instrument. As a harpist and storyteller, maybe you'll call me Shopfia, but if you're too weirded out by that, just call me Sophia, that's fine. Until in tales, I can be a scientific shop or a poetic shop. The magical allure of the harp may draw you into the subject matter, lure you to sleep, or take you to some otherworldly realm that you had no idea about until you were listening to this podcast. Either way, I hope you get more out of it than you initially expected. Tune in to understand how I perceive science, creativity, possibly politics, which might be today's subject, to create a magical realm out of the natural world we experience. I think there's so much more to what we perceive as our everyday lives, and I think we need to reconnect to that. If you want to know more about this podcast, you can listen to my welcome episode, Realm, what is it? Reveries? Something about Roots and Reveries, that's what I named it. You can listen to that short episode to understand my background and how this podcast came to be. I'm still in the developing phase of this podcast, um, but I am just happy to have a few patrons and some regular listeners on my side, so thank you all for keeping this going every two weeks. I wanted to open this podcast, though, by giving a clear solidarity with Palestine. So there's been this narrative that if you're not Jewish or Israeli or Palestinian or whatever, that if you have like no connection to this, that you shouldn't have any opinion at all. And while I think that, you know, if you do have a direct tie to what's happening over with Israel and Palestine, yeah, like you have definitely more say than I would probably. However, that's not to say that I can't go ahead and look at the entire history of what's going on and form an opinion. I'm not here for ignorance. I'm not here for this anti-research. I think we should all be informed because this can happen anywhere, and it has happened in a lot of places. America, you know, the United States was considered the promised land, right? Similar to the holy lands of Palestine, that region. America, the United States, to colonizers, was thought of as this promised land that would just give them complete freedom. Like this random mass of land that was not occupied by anybody or anybody important. And when they came over and found out, you know, people are living here, but they're Native Americans and they look different and they act different and, you know, what makes this their land? This land, you know, we came across this because God gave it to us, because God let us find this over the vast ocean. We're allowed to just take it. And, you know, this has happened all around the world. And I think that 
we should not start our narrative at the Nakba of 1948, but instead trace the issue back much further before the First World War, when Britain and France were drawing territories in the Middle East to profit from oil in the land and areas for ports and ambitions to build railways for trade. So this included the British annexation, which means forcible acquisition of land to establish their own territory of Syria and modern-day Palestine, while France was to have this place called Cilicia. But the problem was that the Ottoman Empire had this land. So France and Britain were like, look, Arabs, we will promise you freedom with your own state if you help us defeat the Ottoman Empire. And this was through a series of letters called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. However, by 1916, these correspondences became way more exclusive between France and Britain instead of including other correspondents such as Russia and the actual Arab leaders who were supposed to have this free state. And they began referring to the idea of Arabs gaining their own sovereignty as the Arab question, which is such a British thing to say, the Arab question. It's like how Southern Baptists will say, like, bless your heart. Like, it comes straight from British etiquette to avoid saying what you really mean. They meant, are we really going to give the Arabs freedom? Between you and me, I think we know what we need to do. So this Palestine region, drawn smaller than what became Palestine later, was agreed to have international administration until Britain and France were like, hey bestie, have you been thinking what I've been thinking? And you know, international administration, what does that even mean? It's like the British putting their little British words up there. It's like how <laughs> research is inaccessible to everybody because we use all these crazy words that nobody could possibly understand what it means unless you go through like five different sources international administration like we're all supposed to rule over this place no it was kind of a placeholder to say hey give us some time we're planning something and britain and france the thing is is that they always end up beefing things got messy with their communication over this sykes pico agreement and king hussein the arab leader and correspondent for the sykes pico agreement was told that the French was to Syria as Britain was to Baghdad, where Baghdad was promised to the Arabs. So the Arabs thought, you know, all of this was going to be theirs in the end, and it's all good. Britain is helping us out against the Ottoman Empire, but we'd have to help them too. And, you know, we'll become friends. But this was miscommunicated. France and Britain wanted these places for themselves. And eventually, when Russia got the bad end of the deal and never secured land after the Ottoman Empire, they were like, we're going to release the letters of the Sykes-Picot Agreement because you guys have been colluding, you know. And then the Arabs saw this and they were like, oh, you guys, France and Britain, have been excluding us out of the conversation. My people are not happy with the British or French occupation already, and now I see you've been colluding behind my back? So this made Britain kick on their proper accent and say, No, 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 you're right. You should have sovereignty and freedom. So let's go ahead and do that. 
The Arabs then followed through against the Ottomans in the Arab Revolt for World War I as planned, and the Anglo-French Declaration of November 1918 pledged that Great Britain and France would, quote, assist in the establishment of indigenous governments and administrations in Syria and Mesopotamia by setting up of national governments and administrations deriving their authority from the free exercise and initiative choice in the indigenous populations, end quote. Dun, 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 dun. Sounds great. The king of Arabs was elected. King Faisal, who declared an Arab government based on justice and equality for all Arabs regardless of their religion, and everything seemed good and fine. Except Faisal was not totally clear with all the agreements and letters and whatnot, and the British and French military were still hanging around. So King Faisal was like, what's all this then? I thought your Sykes-Picot agreement said we would have sovereignty in all these places. You know, and, and Britain and France were like, oh, yeah, no, like, we give you guys choice and whatever, but you know what, you're right. Let's just forget the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And without consulting the League of Nations, because honestly, they knew no one would stand up for the indigenous Arabs. The French enforced the Mandate of Syria, overthrowing King Faisal. And the British enforced the Mandate of Palestine without consulting the League of Nations. And no one did anything. So now they're in charge. And the Arabs never got their freedom. So during this time, the British were already talking with the Zionists, established years prior. And the Zionists, which is a movement begun with Central and Eastern European Jews for establishing a settlement after a long and difficult history of fleeing anti-Semitism and being persecuted, we're like, we want our own place and our own military to defend ourselves. Which seems all fine and good, right? And in 1917, they finally secured a deal with the British government that they would secure land for them to establish that state. This land being the Holy Land, which is interpreted as Palestine. But you guys... There were already people there. They were under occupation from Great Britain. And then Great Britain was like, hey, look how this worked out. Jewish people, now that World War II is finished, we're totally going to give this space for you guys. And they gave the occupied mandatory Palestine to European Jews, which then established the state of Israel. But again, Britain is strategic. Immigration to Great Britain and the U.S. was not a totally feasible thing for all the Jews coming out of the Holocaust. So, the European Jews started moving into this Zionist state and established a military, and Great Britain was their ally. So, of course, Palestinian Arabs were like, bro, what is going on? People have been kicked out of their homes for years and you're letting all of these random people come in. They're claiming that this is their holy land, that th this is where their ancestors are from. And we're just supposed to let them live in my house? And then the European Jews were also like, well, what are we supposed to do? Like, the Holocaust just happened. We don't have anywhere to go, you know. <laughs> and nationalist groups rose up in both areas, the Arabs and the Israelis. 
Israelis, as they now had an established military, had no problem expanding either, especially as tensions were really high. So just think, this was Britain saying here, we won the claim to this land, even though we lied about it, and we actually don't care about anybody here. But look, Jewish people, you can live here, and we'll be your ally if anything comes up, but we don't care about you that much either, because we won't let all the Jews from the Holocaust take refuge in our own country. Look what a great deal this is. You get your own space, minus the random indigenous people living here already. Oh, and don't forget to share some of that oil with me, or else I might not back you up when you need help. And so, you know, tensions were high. Great Britain had their foothold there. They were able to get what they needed, their oil, their trade. They were like, you know, you know, we're going to back the Israeli military. We did promise that the Arabs would have sovereignty one time, but all of this is so confusing and it's your problem now. So that area has just been in chaos. Well, Western like countries like Great Britain and the United States and people benefiting from the oil, they've been like, no problem. You guys can fight. You know, we still get what we need. And the main dude who helped the Zionists establish Israel was named Arthur Balfour. This is where I think this gets interesting, as if it wasn't already interesting. But Balfour was named the chief secretary for Ireland in the late 1880s. He opposed Irish nationalism. He was like, here for Britain, right? He was with Parliament. And because Ireland was, you know, colonized by the British, Ireland was not super happy. They were just recovering from the Great Potato Famine which killed about a million Irish people in six years. And during that time, the British government turned their back, despite having the means to help their starvation and illness. And all these absentee British landlords still forced tenants to pay rent. So Irish people consider this whole period as a genocide. And the Irish were revolting and wanted to claim their own nation back, of course, because What's the point of having different people rule over us if they don't care about us and they actually want to see us die? This nationalism, this Irish nationalism, became known as the Irish question. Ring a bell? The Arab question? So Balfour was like, here, you can buy your land back from the absentee landlords. I'm going to make it super cheap. But you can't rise up for your own nationalism. And when they did, Balfour made it possible for the Irish police force under the British rule to shoot people in protest for Irish nationalism. He said, yes, good. Let's make this a law that allows police to shoot disobedient Irish nationalists. And he did that, and the Irish people got together and they formed this thing called the Irish Republican Army, or the IRA, which is basically the retaliation against the police using lethal force. They've been called terrorists by Great Britain, and Balfour, he stopped being the secretary for Ireland and was appointed to take care of Palestine. 
where he took nearly identical actions for the indigenous Palestinians who wanted their own nationalism. And that was by 1916. So if you've ever heard um, the song Zombie by the Cranberries, in your head, in your head, zombie, that's about the IRA and kind of the revolt against Britain and how it was just kind of like a battleground in Ireland. Um, And it's been a big struggle for them. So I grew up listening to the Irish singer Sinead O'Connor, who passed away just this year. And one song that I have loved over the years, which can only be found live on YouTube or on her direct album, Theology, is called If You Had a Vineyard. You see, Sinead was a very spiritual person, exploring many religious theologies and standing against oppressive systems and people in power. You may have noticed Ireland is strongly in solidarity with Palestine, And that's because of this history of colonization and literal shared oppressive government official, Balfour, um, who, you know, went straight from saying, look, the police can shoot Irish people who want nationalism, those terrorists, the IRA. And then he, he hopped up and moved over to Palestine and started doing the same thing over there to Palestinians. So please, if you have conflated Irish solidarity with Palestine to anti-Semitism, it has nothing to do with that. Sinead, she made this little announcement at the beginning of her performance of this song, If You Had a Vineyard, that I watch on YouTube. And she says that the reference of Jerusalem in the song is referring to Israelites, and Judah represents Palestinians. Her song is just an arrangement of a passage in the book of Isaiah of the Hebrew Bible. And I'm going to read the paraphrased verses made into her lyrics, but I also highly recommend listening to this song because her voice is just, it's just incredible. I don't know how to explain it. You should listen to the song. Okay. If you had a vineyard, Sinead O'Connor. Lyrics go like this. If you had a vineyard on a fruitful hill and you fenced it and cleared it, of all stones until you planted it with the choicest of vine, and you even built a tower and a press to make wine, and you looked that it would bring forth sweet grapes, and it gave only wild grapes. What would you say, Jerusalem and Judah? You be the judges, I pray. Between me and my vineyard, this is what God says. What more could I have done in it that I did not do in it? Why, when I ask for sweetness, it brings only bitterness. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah is pleasant plant. And he looks for justice, but behold, oppression. And he hopes for equality, but hears a cry. Jerusalem and Judah, this is God's reply. Sadness will come to those who build house to house and lay field to field till there's room for none but you to dwell in the land. And sadness will come to those who call evil good and good evil, who present darkness as light and light as darkness, who present as sweetness only the things which are bitterness. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. 
Oh, that my eyes were a fountain of tears, that I might weep for my poor people. For every boot stamped with fierceness, for every cloak rolled in blood, Jerusalem and Judah, I'd cry if I could. I have listened to this song like, like every single day several times i've sung it on the piano i sing it with my harp and the reason i didn't sing it and play it for you today is because copyright i would have to somehow secure this and Sinead o'connor was like not one with the with the record labels like she was very much against like these systematic you know capitalistic ways of oppression especially to artists and and to anybody so it's really hard to find out the people who own her music I can't even, I'm not going to try to get the copyright and sing this for you guys. Plus, her voice is the voice you want to hear this in. But what I take from this song, and ultimately the book of Isaiah, is that when you build house to house and lay field to field, and expect that everything's going to be good and fine, while you leave no room for others to live their lives, there's bound to be conflict. Who knew? And those who justify war in the face of massacred children and martyred people who have no want but a place to call their own, your life is going to be sad and confusing. And if you justify bloodshed for nothing but land to call your own, your life will be sad and confusing. And it breaks my heart to see everything unravel right now. Across the world, there is horror wherever people are mining for wealth or building for wealth, exploiting and oppressing for wealth. You have to think, why wouldn't people just simply move into this land in a way that does not kick people out of their homes? Because land holds something valuable. Because land is called holy And it's called holy for a reason. It gives life, right? If you listen to this podcast, these episodes, my tree episode, my synchronicity episode, you will find, like me, that I think the land is like the source of of everything, of our enlightenment, of, of our ability to even breathe, food. It's how we learn about how things function. It contains resources, oil. It is probably why the US is so involved in ensuring why they keep Israel a Western power. And we need an ally in that region to supply our demand. We need territory loyal to us that gives us a strong foothold, maintains chaos everywhere else, and doesn't allow those oppressed and caged in people to escape with walls and towers, eliminating their control or autonomy to establish a healthy and prosperous economy on their own? Why would Arabs in the Middle East share the resources when citizens and the government of the U.S. have been openly racist and condemning towards Arabs, especially since 9-11? You know what? Especially since the 1880s. Why would they show loyalty to us, be kind to us? Why wouldn't they rebel when Western powers have been lying and manipulating their indigenous land since before the World War? 
I'm not trying to put blame on anything other than completely mad justifications for war and destroying land. I'm not supporting of Hamas. I am not supporting of anybody condoning violence. I don't condone violence. I do not condone destruction from anybody. But I can at least understand why it happens. Destroying monuments, destroying normal human lives with stories to tell until there's only one side of the story. There are olive trees native to the region that are a thousand years old? Some several thousands of years old? You guys, we can't even comprehend what a thousand years is. These are honored as sacred to these communities because of the lucrative production of olives and olive oil. I mean, I use olive oil every single day. And that compensates their community with food, health, economic stability, and pride. Some of these trees have been damaged as a result of the war and the conflict in this region. Taking all of this land as your own is clearly a way to gain wealth. I mean, obviously, but we don't think about it from the standpoint of the land. And we don't think about how erasing the land erases everything about a people, about a culture about the animals that live there, about the plants that inform these people's livelihood. And when you bomb everything and strip everything down to rubble, making everything commercially identical to mimic Western cities like American cities and suburbs, just strips these living cultures of their identity and memory it makes their grandma's memories and stories completely irrelevant. How can you possibly relate to something that doesn't exist anymore? So when you kill everything, I mean, not just people, when you destroy a people's land, you are already destroying a people. And then you destroy the people on top of that. That is what is called genocide complete erasure of somebody's existence, of an entire culture's existence. It ruins the lives of ancestors. It extinguishes the possibility of rebirth and innovation for that culture. It ruins what we perceive as beauty. I came across a fascinating finding this week where children tend to not have an outward preference for natural settings, regardless of improved cognitive processes and exposure to natural environments, such as attention and memory, and calmer dispositions. However, as you age, you begin to prefer natural settings, especially for those individuals who have been regularly exposed to natural environments as a child. And the things that you prefer Preference is akin to, to what we find beautiful, to what's beautiful to us. So our preference towards natural settings is also why we find these things beautiful. It's like a weird intersection of the term preference and beautiful. I hope that makes sense, but this gets me thinking about children in Gaza. 
there's videos that I've seen where they're literally playing in their grave. They're speaking to the to the person taking the video. I know I'm playing in my grave. We know that we're going to be buried in a matter of weeks, days, or hours. And we're going to play here anyways. And play is simply a behavior that encourages social learning and cognitive growth, an environment with an incredible amount of stressors. I mean, threat in our environment has a detrimental effect on attention and working memory, which is our ability to store immediate information. In college, my senior thesis measured people's attentional and working memory abilities under the threat of electrical shock. So anxiety is something that makes us pay a lot of attention to the environment with a threat, like a physical shock, taking away from your ability to pay attention to anything else except for the threat. For instance, if you're listening to this podcast while you're driving, but a car crash happens in front of you, you would only be able to pay attention to the car crash, inhibiting your ability to remember anything that I said in the duration of the traumatic event. And these children, these incredibly resilient children, are able to play this function of learning. They still want to grow. Like their brain is still saying, you need to just live and grow despite everything that's happening around you. It's like this automatic function. They're able to learn and laugh and run around with their friends All the while, the anxiety of threat literally looms over them as warplanes and Israeli police hover in gun towers. And I just think of another fascinating point of research in which impoverished communities have a greater sense of meaning in life and spirituality than wealthy populations. And I feel like that's why as well-off Americans or British or Israelis on the other side of the wall making gluten-free bread for their soldiers with celiac disease, while everybody, you know, within the walls of Palestine are just like, we don't have water. We can stare at the horrors of this war in real time on social media and say, well... I just don't know about it enough to have a stance. Or, I just think Israel has the right to claim sovereignty because they've been attacked too. Or, oh no, that actor from Friends has died and I'm just so sad, but then says nothing about (laughs) the constant bombardment of, of videos of dying people. And I'm no expert on any of this except for that I know how to do research well and that I have a brain that makes connections and ties. And I just want to encourage a healthy conversation while understanding that most of us on the Western side of things have absolutely no clue what it's like to be victims of genocide, let alone most of us on this side of things who are, you know, well off, who have food and water every day, who have a job that pays well, and we're honestly fine Maybe you have an anxiety or depression disorder, but honestly, you're fine. You're not going through war. (laughs) Not to minimize your disorder, you guys. (laughs) But it's like, we don't have any of this spirituality. We don't understand what a meaning of life is. We think everything's good and fine in life. We don't even need to look for spiritual fulfillment because we're fulfilled everywhere else. We don't know what it's like to be victims of genocide. 
We have history. We have narratives from folks who do know what it's like to be oppressed. For people who are on the more oppressed side of things, my only claim is that I'm a woman. And I don't like to say that it's like my claim to oppression because I've seen a lot of white women get so angry, including me, over Donald Trump being elected president, but then choose like a nonpartisan stance on Palestine and Israel. Like they're not mad at the extremely right-wing Israeli government. Like you can still criticize another government. Usually in time, the people who are oppressed and tell these stories say, look, this is happening again. You are supposed to say something. You are supposed to do something. Call your representatives. I bought art this week that went towards children relief funds in Gaza. Just whatever you can do. You can't do much, but you can do something. These people will shine through history. Luckily, I've seen so many posts like, we are here in America where we have a Indigenous Peoples Day now instead of Columbus Day. Congratulations to us. We finally recognized that Indigenous people should have recognition. But then we don't care about what's going on in Palestine. We can't think about what's going on in Palestine. Sadness will come to those who call evil good and good evil. In the night, I've turned to a great television show that makes me feel empowered and gives me a little laugh, but it's called Teenage Bounty Hunters, and it's insane because it's two girls, right? They become bounty hunters, but they're just regular like teenage girls attending a Christian school, and the best part of this show is that they will look at each other and have like their like moment of staring at each other to figure out what to do next and it's like this internal conversation i love it because i talked about this in my synchronicity episode when you have a really good connection with somebody and you're able to just kind of like say the same thing at the same time or you can just look at them and know exactly what they're thinking <laughs> they like depict this in this show and i love that but i have these recurring assassin dreams that I've had for many years that include like all of my friends are in my house at the time of like the forced entry and attack and we're then once we get attacked everybody gets scattered and when I'm like going around my house which becomes way bigger than what my house is in my dream I'm like going into all these random rooms and every time I find like one of my friends we either become allies or I, re I realize that they secretly colluded against me. And you would think that this is a terrifying dream, and it definitely is, but I don't feel scared because I realize I'm actually really stealthy and incredible at being an assassin and defending my friends and upholding my home. War has only been primarily a man's game, and I'm definitely thankful for that, and I understand that I should be, I, sh I don't, you know, want to hurt anybody. I don't even think I would become an assassin. I don't think I have the capacity to kill anything. I can't even kill an ant. But I understand the feeling of desiring individual might and being gratified up 
upon fighting for what I believe is right. This show, Teenage Bounty Hunters, is totally like the dream of women in best friendships who have societal superpowers as a team. And a pillar of Supergirl best friendship is this yin-yang relationship to show their common, sometimes identical experiences and struggles as young women, despite their opposing personalities and impulses. So these high school besties emulate like the perfect art of being a woman by outwardly playing by all the rules. And they show like this perfect recited Christianity through modesty and nonpartisanship with like a sweet smile that women are pressured to uphold, but then being impressive bounty hunters on the side. And the best part, you know, besides their like little inner monologue communication speaking to each other, is that while they think their teenage girl abilities to like decipher identities through casual social media stalking or shock grown men with how they're smart and they're pretty is just a part of their daily lives, like that's just them being them, it applies strikingly with the skills of a bounty hunter. And like most teenage girls, they undergo like the coming of age milestones, like losing their virginity or going to college parties, all while dealing with repercussions of societal backlash being born into wealthy country club southern protestant families and i also love how this one scene they're in their bedroom they're sisters i found out they're actually sisters (laughs) and the twilight series books is in the background but it's kind of blurred out even though it's discreet any 24 year old girl would recognize this and that just made me so happy so this is what i'm turning to this show right now as solace and comfort. I had a best friendship that could totally take over the world when I was young. We were also opposites of one another. We were Twihards, Team Edward, Team Alice. This show just shows how girls are just being girls, but they don't realize that other people perceive them differently. And it just brings me back to this memory of when I was with my friend in middle school in the pencil skirt era. We proudly modeled them down the street, like we were walking down the side of a busy road all the way home. We would walk for hours, because what else are you going to do in middle school? No sidewalk, because nothing's walkable in America, and we're just wearing our pencil skirts. What we would do was we would like encourage people to honk on their way by, because people started honking at us, but not because we were in their way. And we're like, oh, we're getting attention. And so, like, we would get back home from our walk and our pencil skirts, and we'd be like, we got 50 honks today. That's what this show is, like, bringing me back to that feeling of we have this awesome accomplishment of just being ourselves, but it's actually grown men are honking at us off the side of the road. Creepy as hell. Like, one time this, like, female police officer picked us up and we're like do you need a ride home and we're like sure you know so anyways that's my little tangent to bring it off of palestine it's november i wrote a rant last year around this time considering um christmas over thanksgiving (laughs) and in reading this i'm trusting you not to be disgusted with me and just to give me a couple minutes This is a podcast after all, and the best part about podcasts is that they give more whole picture than 160 characters. A photo may be worth a thousand words, 
that a podcast is worth exactly how many words I would like to share with you within an hour or so. And speaking of which, I know my interviews have been quite lengthy, and I apologize. I am working on creating a better model for interview episodes. I'll have a couple interviews coming up. Very exciting. Um, There's definitely an unanticipated level of prep that I must begin anticipating. (laughs) I'm also applying to graduate schools right now, which means my workload has been really high. So I appreciate you sticking with me. I promise to deliver a podcast every two weeks, no matter what. I really want to talk about whales and trees being the same thing to our human brains. And I want to give just a very special thanks to my patrons because there's a amount of dedication for quality research and time that would not be possible without your encouragement. And the fact that people are even listening at all without being patrons is enough to keep this up. But if you would like to guarantee the continuation of my individual creativity, help me secure interviews with really awesome people and be a part of a community that celebrates accessible research and open dialogue about many strange and fascinating topics that would otherwise be shut down by a commercial broadcasting system, consider supporting me monetarily on patreon.com slash If you found anything today um, to be off from my historical recollection of what happened in the region of Palestine and mandatory Palestine and how that got all taken over, please, like, again, this is an open discussion. I would seriously love your input and your interaction. So that's what I'm here for. Just still allowed to do your own research. It's not too complex for a human being to not understand. Anyways, my personal thank you cards for um, my patrons are a work in progress because I'm so busy right now. I'm watercoloring them. But my issue is that I make everything a little too special. So like Frankenstein, I get carried away and create a monster. I'm contemplating sending out this card with a watercolor harpy on it which is a mythical bird woman, and it's terrifying me. They're supposed to be ugly and terrifying, being the Greek creatures of myth that personify storm winds, half woman, half bird of prey. But I guess I just wanted to challenge this notion that she's terrifying by making her beautiful and majestic, because people have told me that I'm terrifying before. I tried making her beautiful and majestic, but you know, then you put like, bird claws on and these like weird wings on her and she just ends up being terrifying to be fair i have believed that i have the power to control the weather since i was a child and i can be the most gentle and kind person you'll ever meet or parasocially enjoy but if i'm truly crossed it will storm (laughs) which brings me to note that storms don't just happen out of the blue There is a push and a pull, and sometimes a shove, that can lead to destruction. Like, volcanic eruptions have been causing drastic climate change by releasing mass amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere for millennia. And humans have become quite adept at changing landscapes and releasing carbon just as volcanic eruptions do. So, you know, when wind currents get all stirred up, Like opposing opinions, great storms are conjured. 
It takes a little bit of effort, takes some volcanic eruptions, it takes some human mining and wars to cause things like terrible storms. There was a very timely snowstorm on Halloween with an evening power outage down a long stretch of Locust Street in Milwaukee. And the leaves were blowing violently through the streets along with flushes of snow. It was what a sight that was for Halloween. And the perfect timing of Beyonce's Haunted popped up on my playlist while I was driving. When it storms, I feel a sense of control. Something about this nature forcing everyone to fear the wrath of nature. Like the word fear is used in religion in terms of great respect and awe. Everyone pauses their mundane tasks, goes home, cooks soul food and snuggles down. Storms aren't all bad, but they require you to heed their warning. Because if you don't, you might face difficulties where folktales describe them as bad luck. But reality explains, if you ignore what's good for you, bad things will probably happen. If you, you know, push comes to shove, things are going to fall down. There's a meme I saw recently saying, I can't wait to be an old lady so I can sit on my porch during a storm and say, we needed this. But I say, don't wait till you're old and don't associate synchronicity exclusively with women, old women in particular. You too can sit on your porch during a storm and say, we needed this. You need a washing away. We need to acknowledge the storm. We need to acknowledge the pushing, coming to the shoving, coming to the storm. So these half-women, half-birds of prey harpies, they also personified karma and punished people on behalf of Zeus by sweeping them away forever. And besides this guy Hesiod, I don't know how to pronounce Greek things, he wrote, The harpies of lovely hair, Acapete and Aelo, and these two in the speed of their wings keep pace with the blowing winds or birds in flight as they soar and swoop high aloft. So he had depicted harpies as like these beautiful creatures. But then all the other Greek writers described harpies as evil spirits with an ugly, fearsome appearance and stench. <laughs> and so harpies ended up just being like these terrible creatures. And it kind of just reminds me of people associating women with sounding or looking like annoying birds. I put this poll up on my Snapchat several years ago that was like, do you guys prefer men or women singing voices? And the majority, like the vast majority of people were like, I like men singing voices better. So I just thank you for listening to the sound of my voice. And I'm finally going to give you my rant. Women can't like talk about things passionately without being displayed as this kind of like harpy creature, you know, harping on everything. But you know what? That's kind of what I am. I'm this harpy. I'm going to bring the storm with me. I'm literally going to play my harp, which has nothing to do with the harpy. And um, I'm going to give you my piece. So my question is why? Why on earth are so many people preparing for Christmas and listening to Christmas music on November 1st? The entire culture around end of the year holidays has been changing before my eyes. And next thing you know, 
guests will be brought to Thanksgiving dinner. Does Thanksgiving mean anything to anyone anymore? Besides the fact that we should not honor the history of colonization whatsoever? But what about the act of giving thanks to Mother Nature's harvest? All the hard farm laborers and our family for pulling it all together to sit down at the table. Perhaps our society does not value a sit-down meal without screen time or care about cooking an entire meal with fresh produce or want anything to do with the liberal or conservative family members around the table. But for goodness sake, can we please just keep Christmas music and a Christmas tree out of it? I simply cannot understand why a Christmas tree should be up anytime before or during Thanksgiving dinner. The three kings didn't even visit baby Jesus until the 6th of January. We have countdowns and dates surrounding the Christmas season, you know, 12 days of Christmas. (laughs) And nowhere is there a date or countdown starting in November. So if you love celebrating Christmas early because you aim to be a perfect, shining emblem of Jesus' love, your aim has missed the mark entirely, my friend. Just like most of the philosophical and political arguments I am now assuming you have. Okay, look. I'm getting carried away. I do end up getting the tree the weekend after Thanksgiving, which is probably still November. It's clearly time for me to swallow my own medicine and put empathy to the test. People need holiday cheer. Milwaukee and Chicago just had their first snow of the season, and my friend on Snapchat put a picture of Christmas decorations with the caption of, too early for Christmas decorations? Well, then I swiped up with this loving criticism, saying, you are insane. But I immediately felt like she would be the one person I would allow to put decorations up. She's a teacher, she just moved, and I don't know her traditions or nostalgic comforts. I understand what it's like to be in my 20s, hours away from my family, surrounded by people who don't know my family, and feeling alone in the things that bring me comfort. And that was my empathetic key that I've been searching for for nearly 25 years, which is super weird to say, I'm a quarter of a century year old. There's this pressure of making everything count of being mindful with everything I do and say now that I've reached so-called adulthood. And these rants about Christmas and Thanksgiving or whatever I need to rant about, they give me this jolt of thrilling harpy rage only replicated chemically by a monster energy drink. But they're not as mindful as I'd otherwise wrongfully argue. I don't want to be a Grinch. Christmas is my favorite holiday. I just want to preserve a natural order. It makes me sad that we need emotional reprieve from a dark and depressing season with demanding deadlines and stressful holidays. We need this reprieve sooner and sooner. And we're reinforced by this hungry market pressing Black Friday deals that feed on our consumption addiction. We get looped into this addiction of new material purchases that just give us a quick dopamine fix. This thing about adapting any Christian holiday from pagan solstice holidays is that we no longer appreciate what the earth has to offer. Not that we're like in Ireland or in Norway or in Mexico. Some of us are. That's great. 
but if you're in Wisconsin with me right now, I understand it might be hard to like connect to understanding how the land contributes to your daily life. You don't farm. You might not even have family who are farmers. But we still need to appreciate this. And I just find like the early push of celebrating Christmas and just like overdoing the Thanksgiving tradition just like doesn't put enough like mindfulness down to the land. <laughs> I just love tradition and routine, so I'll just leave it at that. You can definitely celebrate Christmas anytime you want, and I should not be the police of that. It does make me sad, though, that we are like pushing for this consumption sooner and sooner in the season. But I'm leaving the rest of my rant that I wrote last year to read for the first time since then. So I still have more <laughs> rage against Christmas, but I want you to understand that I have turned another page. I will be spewing insults about your Christmas customs. Just know that I've done my time reflecting. I have a new chapter of acceptance. And in the end, you will not find me celebrating Thanksgiving with Christmas decorations, but I will be actively working on my spiteful judgments towards that side. So here we go. Here's my impromptu reading of my rant that I wrote last year. If you are not a religious person or adhere to another religion but enjoy Christmas music and holiday season traditions, I have one thing to say. Winter lasts through March. Why the hell are you trying to kickstart the longest season of the year? It may be because I am a Chicagoan and overall Midwesterner that experiences such cosmological forces as the polar vortex. Then perhaps I need to blame the Californians. Hey Californians, not everything is about materialism and good vibes at any cost, especially when our drive towards consumerism grows stronger and impulse control grows weaker every year as a whole. Now I am seeing Black Friday deals on November 1st and questioning the soundness of every clothing company's ethics with every 50% off sale. You know, I was right with that. I have to say, I definitely question your ethics if you're able to give a 50% off sale. Like, what is going on? Anyways, finally, Christmas music sucks. If we're going to listen to such corny lyrics and chord progressions for an entire season, I'd rather it be when we truly need it the most, the darkest days of the year. Also, where are the Yiddish tunes? The anti-Semitism of it all chills my bones down to the marrow. The key signatures of Jewish music are far more captivating and soulful. In the end, you are all lawless individuals without dignity and lack respect to the Capricorn season and traditions that make the calendar year make sense in an already man-fabricated world of time and space. Your impulses are that of a little baby that needs to hear the same three songs over and over again until you cry, finally understanding this life lasts a lifetime and not just the month of December. We will all pay the consequences for your underdeveloped frontal lobe and ignorance. <laughs> to the intentionality of Mother Nature's seasons. Eventually, Christmas will be whenever you want. Nothing is a surprise or worth preserving, and we will all perish in a hellfire of fir trees claiming their rightful revenge. Okay. <laughs> I 
hope that you understand my rage about Christmas before Thanksgiving. <laughs> if you are on the side of celebrating Christmas at any point when it becomes cold and dark, know that I now support you in your endeavors because life is a dark place. And um, I'm going to leave it with telling you guys that if you put a little bit of like, if you make your own lattes, which I do, you should put a little bit of salt if you add like some honey or sugar. Like a little bit of salt with some honey and some cinnamon. I've been what I've been doing. I've been making my mocha pot espresso and then I froth up some milk and I just take a French press and I, I heat some milk in a microwave. I drink oat milk. I'm an oat milk drinker. Heat it up in the microwave, put it into my French press, froth it up with my French press, and then pour it into my mocha pot espresso with honey and cinnamon and a little bit of salt mixed into the espresso. And it is, mmm. It's like, it's like a salted chocolate chip cookie without the chocolate chips. I'm telling you. That is where I must leave you all. That was kind of an intense episode. I came for people. I came for people like myself. And I hope that you recognize that. Just be mindful. Okay. Bless. Goodbye.